0: Hi folks, David Jameson here, editor of Conta.scot. I'm very glad to be joined today by Michael Below, who is a college instructor in the United States, writer, trade unionist, um, and our man on the ground uh, at this stage in uh, the run-up to the US presidential primaries and elections, which still a bit away, but I think we can already see a clear outline. Uh, of what's coming down the line. Already, uh, it's looking like Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, Mark II, clash of the increasingly hectic and aged and sagging titans of world uh, empire. But Michael, first of all, thanks very much for joining us.
1: Uh, Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks.
0: How likely, first of all, just let me ask, how likely is uh, Biden v. Trump to...
1: I think it's by far the most likely matchup at this point. Biden, of course, has uh, recently launched his Let's Get the Job Done campaign. That's the slogan, I think, for this uh, 2024 campaign. And uh, Trump was the first among the Republicans to announce. Everybody knew, of course, that he was going to be running. And there are challengers on either side, but uh, their chances aren't good, right? So the, the most likely sort of alternate election was looking like it might be Biden versus Ron DeSantis, right, the governor of Florida, Um, but his fortunes are slipping uh, every day. There are uh, also contenders on the Democratic side, and they're an interesting pair. So as far as I know, maybe I'm missing somebody, but I think there's two main Democratic challengers, and those are Marianne Williamson, who has announced her candidacy, and Robert F. Kennedy Jr., son of the Uh, You know, the Robert F. Kennedy, uh, who ran for president uh, in 1968 and was assassinated then. Williamson, so if if listeners aren't aware of um, those figures, Marianne Williamson ran for president in 2020 as well. And she was the kind of like woo-woo crystals candidate uh, and she was like widely panned for that you know that kind of like uh witchy spiritual new agey type uh orientation I actually think she's I mean you know I I think there's a lot there right she's like Oprah Winfrey's spiritual advisor she's made a living for a few decades sort of selling these like new agey type books and I find that stuff you know a little ridiculous but I think Marianne Williamson's politics are interesting she's very far to the left of the party center, she doesn't consider herself or call herself a democratic socialist the way that Bernie Sanders does. But um, you know, she it's it's worth looking up her her program. She has a very strong, uh, labor program, for instance, uh, that goes considerably further than the proposed uh, PRO Act, uh, which would, uh, you know, loosen up a lot of the restrictive elements of the labor law in the United States and would really give a lot of teeth to pro labor legislation. So she does have like fairly good politics on some things. I tend to think she shouldn't be dismissed out of hand for her sort of New Agey tendencies. But I do think it's worth uh, kind of just thinking about like what kind of a candidate she is, especially in light of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. who is in a lot of ways a sort of uh, standard fair like liberal Democrat. He sort of shares the liberal democratic position on abortion, on gun control. But his sort of signal policy is his sort of anti-vaccine pseudoscience. So he's um, a big believer in the uh, idea that vaccines cause autism, you know, the widely discredited position about vaccines, and he's a uh, peddler of COVID conspiracy theories, and he's been Getting getting a lot of t- a lot of attention from elements of the far right, sort of most notably Steve Bannon as a big booster of Robert F Kennedy Jr. And so both of the challengers to Biden are in their own way sort of like elements of this sort of strange new age pseudoscience Democrat, the kind of like aging wealthy hippie who's like getting more and more deranged all the time, and they you know they might become this- they might go left like Williams, or they might go right like Kennedy this sounds very
0: like the kind of underbelly of us society i mean it, there's always this this thing that people say about american politics that it's very paranoid it's very kind of uh sort of cranky around the edges it kind of sounds like the edges have invaded the mainstream of american politics of course that's you know been going on forever and and certainly trump in a sense represented that as well the the arrival of the entertainment complex and politics in politics in a big way and so on. I mean, I watched Kennedy's video. I should say, by the way, I'm quite ignorant of American politics in many ways. I kind of pride myself these days on not becoming too addicted to American politics because it's a kind of nerdy thing. But I did watch his, out of fascination, his video, and it, there was just a lot of recall to his family's famous name, an attempt to kind of bring back that idea of Camelot you know, and all this kind of stuff. It was all very vague. There wasn't um, was just this kind of like what we need is like a unified America. And I also thought there was a little bit of a nod to kind of and we need peace, you know, which was always the Kennedy's brand, bizarrely, because they were actually prosecutors of quite a lot of violent action uh, in their time, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis, Bay of Pigs, right. Vietnam, but they always had this thing of like, we are the peace ones right taking on somehow the military industrial complex and uh you know hence a lot of the conspiracy theories around assassinations and so on um so he kind of he whistled at that stuff but there wasn't a lot of concrete policies okay so that's that's interesting but it does look that does sound like a Biden v Trump um situation unless things go completely crazy which they could and you know, I will
1: say just if I could if I could add a little bit um, Biden is uh, unpopular um it's it's worth it's worth saying that um, you know huge majorities of not only just the electorate but of Democratic party voters have said that they just don't think that Biden, he just doesn't have the juice right it's it's like they don't they don't see him as um inspiring confidence something like close to 70% uh, i think say in general so not just democratic party voters but people in general say that he doesn't have the stamina and sharpness for being the president all, all told only 32% say he deserves reelection 26% of those under 35 say he deserves reelection um, And even a large portion of those who basically approve of Biden's job, uh, something like 10 or 11 percent uh, who approve of Biden uh, also say that he shouldn't be reelected. I mean, there's a there's a pretty palpable sense that the sort of uh, electorate in general, that the kind of common sense of the American electorate think of Biden as a sort of spent force. That said, you know, Biden's approval was low last year, too, and the run up to the um, midterm elections and it also just wasn't the case that the republican party stood to gain very much from biden's unpopularity it's you know it's usually the case in times like this where the when the president has low approval ratings you think the other party's just sort of gonna benefit but in 2022 that didn't really happen so it's not it's not clear that um that biden's unpopularity here Redounds automatically to the benefit of his Republican opponents, but it is worth saying that what's pretty clearly on offer here is um, a choice between what are going to be two quite unpopular candidates, and that that makes that that alone makes the outcome a bit difficult to sort of predict. You know, there's also all this business about the debt ceiling and what happens if it's not raised, and uh, you know, for for listeners who aren't uh, the Sort of deranged nerds who follow American politics. That might all be meaningless without further uh, elaboration. But I guess suffice to say that um, a lot, an awful lot, can happen in a year. You know, if uh, there's failure to raise the debt ceiling, this would be a sort of unprecedented kind of uh, crisis. And it's not even clear if it were to, if it were to happen, whether it would be Biden who takes the blame or the Republicans. So there's just, there's just sort of no way to tell. I think at this point what happens here but it is it is going to be basically a a confrontation between two figures who are broadly unpopular with the American public.
0: Um, I, I take your point that it's, that it's only one um, item out of several that could completely upend American politics, but could you just tell our listeners what the, the debt ceiling controversy is?
1: Just a sort of statutory limit on uh, how much the United States federal government can borrow to cover its expenses. And it's something like, I forget what exactly it is, it's like $34 trillion dollars or something. If it sounds familiar, it's because there's been a number of times in the past 10, 15 years that the debt ceiling has been met and then have to uh, have been raised. So Congress has the power to raise the debt limit. The way this has gone down generally is that when there's a Democrat in office and a Republican majority in Congress, uh, the Republican majority refuses to raise the debt ceiling or refuses to raise the debt ceiling without some spending cuts to services like uh, Medicare and Medicaid, Social Security, the things that the federal government spends money on, and in particular these sort of welfare state programs. And so, the there was a debt ceiling confrontation when Obama was in office. For example, in 2011, there was uh, we reached the debt ceiling when Trump was in office, but because it was a Republican president, the Republican Congress had no, um, the Republicans in Congress had no uh, objection to raising the limit at that time. Um, but now they're saying they'll only raise the debt limit again uh, with spending cuts. Biden has said he won't negotiate on the question of spending cuts. So he um, he took a bit of a, a harder line on the question than Obama had. Sort of lobbying organizations of capital have, you know, the Business Roundtable, uh, the Chamber of Commerce have put out statements uh, sort of pleading with Biden to negotiate, which is to say to negotiate on cutting welfare state spending. Um, Elements of the Democratic House caucus have also said they want Biden to soften his line here and to negotiate spending cuts. I think it's pretty likely that in the end the debt ceiling does get raised. You know, what happens, by the way, if um, the debt ceiling doesn't get raised uh, and uh, you sort of reach the limit is that the federal government just sort of can't pay its bills. Um, So federal employees don't get paid. uh, Welfare payments don't go out. Uh, you know, it becomes this sort of massive uh, crisis. Everyone sort of agrees that it would be a massive crisis. There's no, uh, you know, there aren't any Republicans saying that it would basically be a good thing if the federal government couldn't pay its bills. But they are trying to uh, sort of wrench some spending cuts out of the the dispute.
0: Could you just tell us, before we move on to Trump and the Republicans, what has... What has Biden's administration been like, and what are its kind of major dynamics? I've had some people reflect that he kind of, you know, pitched more a bit more to the left at the start of his administration, drawing in some on the left of the party, Bernie Sanders among them, who I see has quite quickly endorsed Biden's second run for a second term as as president. Uh, but in recent months, he's increasingly. Drawn back from that and presented as a. I mean, he he was always very much a figure on the right of the Democrats and a kind of establishment figure, but he's moving kind of in even more kind of harder kind of position to the to the right. Um, what what has his administration looked like?
1: Well, you know, it's been interesting. Um, there there have been a number of moments during the course of his administration where uh progressives and sort of left liberals and leftists have you know said they've been surprised at the uh willingness of the administration to sort of take up certain points on a progressive program for example so you know the uh so Biden the Biden administration's environmental uh policy projects for example have been widely seen as obviously not enough uh no one no one who's an environmentalist thinks that like uh you know it's all wrapped up with a bow on it or whatever uh, you know has gone much further much faster than previous Democratic presidents have on um the sort of field of environmental policy for instance and renewable renewable development and of course some of this is expressed uh, like on Twitter and places like that with like the dark Brandon memes I don't know if you've seen like dark Brandon decided to get aggressive with the Republican party in sort of maneuvering to uh get some of these big uh very expensive you know spending packages passed I mean most uh, most notably the uh oddly named inflation reduction act which was the sort of transformed build back better bill which was a big uh sort of infrastructure spending uh and also some social services spending uh sort of mega bill that contained a lot of the environmental stuff in it and they passed that by basically um doing an end run around the republican party they basically tricked them and played some actual kind of hardball you know did some real politics in the way that it it often seems like the Democratic Party is generally unwilling to do. And so there are these moments that um, because the bar is so low, uh, when the Biden administration cleared them, it was very satisfying to to liberals. On the other hand, uh, the Biden administration, in a lot of respects, has looked like a continuity with and even an intensification of certain Trump era policies. Uh, I think here, particularly of uh, the administration's stance towards China, of course, uh, Trump made a bunch of, you know, there was all this sort of uh, talk about um, how you know China was eating America's lunch in the global economy, and uh, we have to like engage in a trade war with China. Trump said trade war can be a good thing, um, and his his administration slapped some tariffs, you know, on on Chinese imports and stuff like that. Uh, and what Biden has done just makes that look like absolute child's play. I mean, there's just no comparison here of uh, the Biden administration pursuing the most sort of aggressive economic trade war policies vis-a-vis China's, um, you know, like microchips manufacturing sector in particular, with a policy that uh, even punishes, you know, other global other global actors to the extent they do business with the China chips manufacturing sector. You know, it's worth pointing out that there's a lot of sort of appetite for uh, escalation with China within the Democratic Party, um, but really on a, on a bipartisan basis, these sort of beltway, you know, capital types. Um just sort of freely talking about, uh, you know, the, the potential of war with China and in a way that, you know, they're not, which they're not scared of, you know, they're, they're a little bit excited about or a little bit feel like it has to go in that direction. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, of course, visited Taiwan. I forget the last time an American official, you know, made a diplomatic visit to, to Taiwan like that, but it was a clear sort of provocation with, with China. Um, and of course, since Obama, there's been a, a huge sort of military pivot to Asia. This ties in with the, the sort of uh, Inflation Reduction Act and these sort of infrastructure projects, which are seen in part as um, and justified in part as uh, you know necessary steps to compete with, with an emergent China. There was a recent article in The Atlantic, which um, called for a broader sort of industrial policy focused, for example, on shipbuilding to um, uh, restore the sort of projective strength of the American Navy. Uh, so that it can be deployed in the in the Asian seas and encircle China and ensure that all these trade routes and so on are are under American uh, influence and all this. So the, anyway, the Biden administration has been fully in lockstep with these kinds of like anti-China escalations. You know, the Biden administration's position on Ukraine has been just sort of litter the place with the most sophisticated military technology that you could. <laughs> Think of you know has pursued this sort of hard line with Russia has at every step sort of undermined any possibility of a peace process. The the Biden administration has um, in those respects been belligerent you know not predisposed to pursue any kind of like peaceful international uh, relations on the border on the question of the border you know which was a, the major sort of political issue of the 2016 election. The Biden administration has uh, reverted back to many of the Trump era border hardening policies. I, uh, read this morning that they're going to be deploying, uh, some thousands of American military troops to the border in anticipation of, uh, you know, a surge of migrants from Central America. Uh, and so they and they've also, you know, uh, refused to, um, you know, expedite the processing of refugee applications or of asylum applications. They force uh, applicants to remain on the Mexican side of the border rather than live in the United States while they're processed. The Biden administration has really sort of taken a page from from Trump. Trump's uh, campaign as well was marked by a kind of departure from your sort of um, bog standard Republican free market talk, right He talked about infrastructure development. Um, domestic investments in, you know, basic infrastructure. And it was, it was Biden who got to sort of get the big win on that. Um, But there's been this sort of move across the political field towards uh, increasing interest in like industrial policy, domestic investment in the economy, direct intervention in the economy, harsher uh, and more um, sort of hostile kinds of trade relations uh, internationally. And that's been true across the Trump and Biden administrations alike.
0: So I find this really interesting because, as you say, there's a a convergence, really, in in the really big policy questions. The direction, if you like, of the American empire, of American capitalism, there's a certain convergence between the Republican and Democratic parties on, as you say, the the relationship between the state and how it's seeking to drive and mould economic development, trades, You know, a certain reshoring, easy to overstate, I suppose, that there's a a growth in protectionist measures, especially towards China, which has been growing since Obama, of course. Obama introduced a lot of this stuff. It was continued by Trump. It's now being continued by Biden and it's growing with each administration so that there's an obvious bipartisan agreement here on the Chinese threat, on the need for the state to back American capital in, in a, an increase in global competition. And yet behind that, I feel like Biden's, his real message going into any election against Trump, as you say, it's this finish the job stuff, kind of euphemistic, the job presumably being to defeat the ghastly hydra of MAGA republicanism and, um, and yet, as you say, there's a there's a significant degree of convergence between, between these two positions. But given that, how effective is this finish the job thing going to be? My impression from afar was that um, this idea of Biden as really reducible to the anti-Trump was quite successful for him in the last election. Of course, Trump significantly increased his vote, but he was still blown away. Um, by the backlash against the kind of MAGA movement. It worked for him then. Will it work for him now? Has that feeling diminished? Are people still, is I mean, is there still a significant element of American society who are kind of panicked or horrified by the specter of
1: Trump? Um, I do think that Trump running, as opposed to the Republican Party finding some other candidate, does have the effect of driving Democratic turnout. I don't think that I don't think that Biden uh, inspires much of anyone in the Democratic electorate. I think, but I, I don't think that's necessarily going to be a huge barrier to people voting for him on the Democratic side because it's not just a straightforward popular vote. You, you got the whole electoral college business. You know, you can have big differences in the outcome coming from like quite small marginal shifts in some state. I, I am interested to see what the effect of the primaries are on the outcome. Because, of course, I don't think either Marion Williamson or Robert F. Uh, Robert, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. are going to uh, win the nomination. With Biden polling so weak as a candidate, there could be some sort of early primary interest in these other candidates. If Robert Kennedy in particular, and he's the more popular of the, of the two challengers, as it stands, by the way. If he kind of whips up a lot of people on... Um, sort of anti-vaccine or covid conspiracy stuff like if he leans into that i do think it's possible that he turns some like would be democratic voters into trump voters if you know when he doesn't get the nomination so there's there's i think a potential for just sort of strange things to happen because of uh you know the handful of voters that have their behavior affected by what happens in the primary and how sensitive the overall result is to quite small marginal shifts in the general. For those reasons, it's sort of hard to say what happens too. But I think I think Trump running, it is this kind of bind for the Republican Party in the sense that Trump is really the only person who can sort of uh, really be the lightning rod for energizing Republican voters, but he also energizes Democratic voters. Um, and that's that's the sort of dilemma that the Republican Party is in just now.
0: So as you said, a while back, the Republican establishment perhaps might have hoped to steer, is it Florida governor, isn't it, Ron DeSantis, uh, in front of Trump, because DeSantis was a more palatable presentation of the kind of MAGA project. People were saying he was sort of Trumpism without Trump. If that's even possible, I always thought, like, I'm not really... It's a very personalist movement. I'm not really sure that that's a viable project. And it's kind of proved not to be. He makes some of the same noises. He has some some of the same combative posture. But he's not Trump, and he doesn't seem to cut through in the same way. And it looks like Trump's base in the Republican Party and Wider has proved quite durable. What went wrong with, with DeSantis... And why is why will only Trump do? And what does that tell us about the Republican Party?
1: It's a good question. You know, I think Ron DeSantis's big misstep was just not. So he hasn't actually announced that he's running for president. So he's he's as it stands, he's not a candidate. He did publish a what what is very clearly a campaign book. You know, it's it's common for uh, American presidential candidates to like in the run up to their campaign to sort of publish a a memoir. And they always, and I, I think the name of uh, DeSantis's memoir is something like that, like The Courage to be Free or something. They always have these kind of titles. Uh, Obama's was the audacity of hope. You know, they're, they're all whatever. They all sound like that. He's acting, I guess, like a candidate, even though he hasn't sort of announced his candidacy. And I think he seriously misstepped in just not declaring, you know, months ago. I, I'd say like in the in the months after the 2022 midterm elections, when it was like, The Trump brand had sort of never taken more damage than uh, the 2022 midterms when a bunch of the sort of um, sort of handpicked Trump candidates just like lost their races. It was beginning to look as though Trump just the, the sort of Trump brand just couldn't win an election. Right. His endorsement just like wasn't having the effect. And it did look as though the sort of sun was setting on the Trump movement. And I think that's the moment DeSantis, if he really did want to run should have announced and sort of just sort of cobbled together as many sort of Republican endorsements within the, you know, within the congressional Republican caucus uh, as possible. But, you know, and at this point there just may be no incentive for him to declare because his, um, His polling vis-a-vis Trump has just been slipping. DeSantis, you know, the differences between DeSantis and Trump, I think it's correct what you say that, like, what's Trumpian about Trumpism or whatever is, like, the personal characteristics of Trump. On a policy basis, he's, like, not really easy to differentiate from any other Republican and the story of his administration was largely a story of republic of continuity with previous Republican administrations it wasn't it wasn't some big break in um sort of policy terms and so there's there's nothing identifiably uh sort of trumpian about like the kind of program uh what's what strikes me as identifiably trumpian is is in the sort of personal characteristics of Trump and DeSantis just like doesn't have the sauce there. He just isn't the kind of uh I don't know, he's like a nerd. He's unlikable. He's he's not funny. He doesn't have any of the sort of attractive characteristics of Trump.
0: He, he's like a stereotype of a right wing Republican. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he, he yeah. like a sort of like Republican Ken doll. And he comes across as very wooden as well and very kind of, you know, not very passionable. The whole phenomenon of Trump is based around his Extremely kind of rudeness, his failure to fit the mold of the traditional American politician. It's interesting you say, yeah, I mean, he's not, not only did he not diverge from Republican traditions, and you know, many of his biggest policy achievements flew in the face of the kind of aesthetic of MAGA. You know, like uh, he cut taxes for the rich and basically did the Republican Party's bidding, he brought John Bolton in. You know, what I mean, despite all his kind of America first stuff. But what did maintain throughout was, you know, the show went on. You know, he keep being insulting to, you know, when Colin Powell died, he kept saying things like, you know, like releasing statements, slagging him off and just being like the total uh, storm of impropriety. One thing I am interested about and as we've discussed, I should say. Not only does he not depart from the Republican mould, he's part of a wider kind of two-party consensus. But one thing I am surprised about, I mean, I'll be honest, after January 6th, and I say this as someone who was always sceptical of what I thought of some of the more hysterical claims about what January 6th represented, and I never thought it represented a serious bid for power by the kind of human detritus of the MAGA movement. I mean, once you saw it, you were like, right, this is actually quite tragic. Uh, In many ways. But that said, I did think to myself, the American establishment, you know, the, 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 the permanent state, as some of the Republican movement call them, but Wall Street, civil service, you know, they're watching this thinking to themselves, this is a complete joke. Like, we're being humiliated. I remember loads of journalists at the time saying, in China, they're laughing at us. In Moscow, they're laughing at us. So I thought, well, probably they are. And that probably does stick in the craw of people high up in the kind of state and establishment. And I kind of thought Trump's probably fucked it here, to be honest. Like, he, this is just too humiliating for America for this to, for this to go on. As you say, though, like, he's not only survived that, he then survived the midterms, where much of the kind of Trump magic, if there was some kind of fell through his fingers, his candidates didn't win. And yet the Republicans, it seems to me that the Republican Party is in a very severe crisis, masked only by the personality of this man who fixates everyone on the right of American politics and on the left of American politics. Behind Trump, it seems like there's no organic relationship anymore between the Republicans and this wider base, some of which has been constructed for them by Trump one way or the other, either Trump loses this election, or if he were to win, he's gone after that anyway. It seems to me like this is all storing up a lot of problems for
1: Republicans. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Uh, And I think, you know, on on Trump, the character, what's important about Trump, it's like, you mentioned his his rudeness. And I think that's connected to um, his sort of overall kind of like projection of a kind of alpha male characteristic. I think Trump kind of in a way like embodies the fantasies of a lot of republican voters in a way that like DeSantis just can't right these other these other candidates just don't you know he's incredibly wealthy he's uh, extremely powerful but he doesn't accept any of the sort of like aesthetic trappings of your sort the sort of beltway establishment or the sort of high society kind of uh effete you know emasculated kind of uh you know, a uh, uh, liberal elite or whatever. Um, so he's this brash, brazen kind of figure who, nevertheless, can can sort of live in and navigate the worlds of the elites uh, and ultimately dominate them, right? And I think I think that's the kind of um, part of Trump's appeal is that he sort of represents this kind of fantasy. Uh, for a lot of voters in a way that like other other candidates just like can't really do. And Trump, I mean, Trump also, he can really genuinely violate conventions in a way that seems singular, even when these, um, you know, DeSantis will rail all day about like the Washington establishment or whatever. And so he'll like try to he'll like play at kind of like violating the conventions of the Washington establishment. But he's he can't really he doesn't really do it. He's just not convincing on that score. And I think you're right. Like Trump represents for the Republican Party, or what he sort of what he sort of shows or demonstrates about the Republican Party is that that is a party that's like pretty weak in crisis. I, I think I mentioned before that like the the Republican Party's basic electoral strategy is to try to figure out how to turn electoral minorities into legislative majorities, right? It's they their electoral strategy since 2010 has largely been how do we figure out how to like get fewer people to vote. Altogether, how do we redraw district boundaries to turn to turn our to sort of dilute our opponents votes and concentrate our votes? You know, so it's like they've had this kind of like they're in this bind, which is that they the coalition they represent and, you know, their sort of principal fundraiser backers, the really powerful elements within the party are just sort of deeply unpopular to to the electorate. They could, I mean, one move would be to just sort of like try to compete for votes, <laughs> try to try to get more votes than the Democratic Party. But then they'd have to change their whole program and, and uh, you know, distance themselves or break their relationships with their core, most essential sort of elements of their coalition. So the Republican Party is in this sort of really deep conundrum um, that Trump sort of is a, for the time being anyway, like be a kind of get out of jail free card. Or he he can sort of like paper over uh, this sort of more structural uh, weakness of the of the Republican Party. On January second, I mean, this was a. I, I agree that it was like this kind of like ridiculous spectacle. And you know, you gotta you gotta look at the sort of people who were there at the Capitol, and you just sort of said to yourself like, this is obviously going nowhere. These people aren't serious. They have no idea. You know, these are these are people who like own used car dealerships in. Uh, fucking Tennessee or wherever and like they're they just don't have what it takes to you know they ultimately they want to go home and go back to their like really nice lives they're they're not like this they're not like uh you know the song cool up storming the bestie or something it's not it it seemed like a joke i think what was really serious about january 2nd was the republican party's behavior right it was it wasn't what was you know it wasn't what was happening outside the capitol but what was happening inside the call is coming from inside the house or whatever. Right. So it's like the, the vast majority of the, of the Republican congressmen did vote basically to not accept the results of the election. And I think it was that moment more than the sort of storming of the Capitol by the kind of QAnon shamans and so on that really represents the present state of the Demo- of the, excuse me, the Republican party. And I think it's, I think that was like a, a sort of admission and at the very least an indication that like the Republican Party knows they can't win on a sort of a standard electoral popular basis. And so instead they kind of in broad daylight um, engaged in a semi-organized conspiracy to undermine the United States Constitution and the uh, 2020 election, and that's that's I think about where the party is these days. And so, yeah, that they're they're stuck to Trump, I think, because they haven't figured out a way out of that sort of uh, structural problem they have, and they just uh, uh, they they um, are finding it harder and harder to win fair and square. I
0: sort of feel like the conclusion we've arrived at is that Trump is the lodestar of American politics because he's the only people who can hold together the base simultaneously of the Republicans and the Democrats. He's the only person who can give any purpose (laughs) to these two kind of shabby establishment parties as they struggle to enthuse the wider public about any kind of project you know, it does it does feel like having read a bit more about American politics and American history in particular recently, it's hard to imagine some of the kind of some of the project type presidents, I think. Of I mean, Lyndon Johnson was kind of uh you know how he's he's heroized in democratic circles as the tragic, almost the kind of the tragedian president who had only his hands not been tied by Vietnam he would have unleashed uh the good society or sorry it was the great society wasn't i'm I'm confusing that with david cameron's uh knock off the big society or something but um the great society he was he was only mimicking you know past american presidents who liked to emerge into public life leading a crusade of some kind or another very often related to something like poverty um or do you know what i mean like uh um, repairing some of the contradictions in American society uh, and so on. It seems unimaginable that you could have a president like that today. And, and I suppose Trump, and to an extent, was make America great again. He was also kind of drawing on that a bit. But it, it all turned to shit in power. There was no sign of this platform once he was in office. And Biden isn't even trying. And you get the impression that if Trump runs again, he'll use the same platform again, with it being much less convincing. Do you know what I mean? To his own base, many of whom will be voting for him like people attend the Rolling Stones gig in 2023, right? It's just, remember how, how much fun this was once? Remember when we were young and we used to dance to these songs? There's a sad quality, to I think, to to, to this. So, yeah, it's, it's strange to think it's Trump holding together, <laughs> This entire ridiculous, polarized kind of show. anyway, um Michael, thanks very much for joining me.
1: yeah, it's been a pleasure. thanks for the conversation.
0: And perhaps uh, as we get closer to uh, to the big fight, if it does arrive, then we can return to these themes and uh, and discuss them some more.
1: Yeah, we'll have to see what happens this summer. I mean, the with the dead ceiling stuff uh, on the horizon, there's all kinds of uh, all kinds of sharp turns all of this can take in the next few months.
0: Want more like this? Subscribe to Contour Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contour.substack.com and find great articles and more at contour.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contourscot.